an Englishman in San Diego at Lawless Comic Con 2023. Panel, how do you write a script? So we've got a panel called How Do You Write a Script? Uh, with the great Andy Diggle. Yay. The amazing Rob Williams. Indomitable Michael Carroll. And grumpy John Wagner. So, can you start with the... Can you say a few words about yourself and how you got into writing? Who, me? Yeah. Yeah, you, you. Start with you. Start with John. Yeah. Uh, how did I? Uh, I couldn't do anything else. You know, <laughs> I found I was pretty bad at everything else I tried. So I got a job at DC Thompson's. In fact, I was living with my aunt, and my aunt wanted rid of me. So she pulled an advert out of the newspaper, and she came up and said, "Here, John." Why don't you move to Dundee? <laughs> Where DC Thompson's were looking for editorial assistance, and I said, "Well, I'll give that a shot," and uh, well, that got me into the whole thing. And when I found out that DC Thompson didn't actually pay their workers, I decided I would try going freelance, and uh, here I am. And how, so you went freelance writing then. Yeah, writing, yeah. Well, my art didn't sell. <laughs> so, yeah. so, Mike, how did you get... I hear you, you, you might have been involved in book writing or something. Yeah, I, I, I committed um, several acts of book writing over the years, and I'm, I'm not ashamed of it. Um, everybody else is ashamed of it. Um, yeah, I, I, I... What really helped to me was I always wanted to be a comic book writer, but I realized it was hard. And then one day, John Higgins nagged me enough and said, you should send your stuff into 2008. And I did, and Andy Diggle was the editor at the time, and he sent me back a, a wonderful rejection letter. I had all these lists of everything I did wrong, and so what I did was I did the same thing again, but didn't do those bits. And <laughs> then around about the same time, uh, Andy left 2008, so it was about a year and a half before Matt ever got back to me. I mean, that's how I got into it. But uh, I've been reading 2008 since uh, part one. So it was always a part of my life. And the fact that you know I got a chance to actually write some of the characters that I grew up reading means that I have nothing original to say. So. <laughs> Sorry about that. So the panel's over. Don't yeah. <laughs> okay, Rob? Um, I was working as a journalist. Um, and I've, I've told this story before, but the first submission I ever did to 2008, Dave Bishop sent me back a letter, uh, just before an email, and he said, congratulations, you have sent in the most unoriginal future shot we have ever received. <laughs> said, in fact, we first published your story in Prog 7, or something like that. And he'd taken the time to photocopy the actual story from Prog 7 and sent it to me. So he went above and beyond, which was nice of him. Um, but no, I, I, I never intended to, to be a comic writer because I just didn't think it was something you could actually do for a living, frankly. I, I'd always loved comics. Uh, I was working as a freelance journalist and, and I wrote one um, comic uh, and I went along to a Bristol Comic Con, uh, not here actually, in the watershed, back when it was in the watershed, 
And I was very fortunate that comics, which a new British company was starting out, and I just handed all of this mound of script to them and went, I've written a comic. And rather than treating me like an idiot, which I probably deserve to be treated as, they actually read it. And then they rang me a few months later and they kind of went, oh, we, we, you know, we want to do this. And, um, and that was my first comic, it was called Class War. And they, fortunately for me, they teamed me up with an amazing artist called Trevor Hairsign. Uh, and suddenly I had an avenue into comics, which was never really my intention, to be honest with you. So that's kind of how I ended up here. I thought, Fall with the thug. With thug. Um, yeah, how did I get in comics? I guess I, I always wanted to write comics. Um, and as a teenager, I wrote 2008, like to various writers via the editorial address, asking for advice on how to write. And to bless him, the much missed Alan Grant wrote back to me and, and sent me uh, a Strontian dog script. I guess I was probably about 14 or something. It was part one of Incident on Major Minor. And I'd never seen a comic script before. I didn't know how to do it. And like, suddenly there it was, and I could sit down and see what he put on the page and then how Carlos adapted it for the page and so on. And it was, it was like a big light bulb moment for me. I guess I was probably about 14. It was like, okay, I could do this. You know, I can't draw, you know, but I can, you know, if an artist can bring it to life and, you know, make me look good, then I can hide my lack of talent behind good art. And that's been what I've been doing ever since. Um, in terms of 2080, I mean, I did my, I studied media studies at, at uni and I did my dissertation on comics just as a, Basically, just an excuse to interview as many writers and artists as I could get in contact with, just to pick their brains for advice on craft and technique, storytelling technique. And just so my dissertation was basically just a catalogue of, you know, it's the equivalent of film studies for comics. It was a very nuts and bolts catalogue of technique. But I think the fact that I was taking that interest in the actual production of comics rather than the looking at the finished product side, looking at more from the inside, I think that's what impressed. Um, Steve McManus and David Bishop when I applied for the job as an editorial assistant, which is how I started off. Um, and yeah, and I, I, I guess I stayed there for a total of about four years. And I kind of worked my way uh, through promotions um, until I eventually became Thug. Um, you know, the, there's this ceremony where they kind of give you the plastic rubber mask, you know, and you've got to wear that in the office like for nine to five, which is kind of harsh. It's hot here. Um, but, you know, after, after all, and that was, that I became Thug uh, about literally the same week that Rebellion bought 2080 from Egmont Fleetway. And so me and Matt, who like we brought on as my assistant, um, we had to spend half our time putting the comic together and the other half of our time traipsing around London trying to find new premises because Egmont Fleetway were going to kick us out. Um, and I guess like after about a year and a half of thugdom, I kind of like decided it was time to go and put my body where my mouth was and actually do what I was intended to do, which was right. Because I'm not really cut out for the nine to five I don't think I was a terribly good editor, frankly. Uh, and I just wanted to go and tell stories. So I've been doing it ever since. That was like 20 years ago. Did you ever do the nom de plume bit where editorial often would, would write on the side? Did you do any of that? No. I, I, that always, like, David had a very strict rule, like, you know, editors should not write for the comic. Uh, and that he invented that very strict rule after he'd written a lot of stuff in the comic that people didn't like. And it's like, <laughs> well, to be to be fair to David, um, I mean, he and I were often kind of like, you know, a dagger's drawn with each other. Uh, but I think we've both mellowed with age somewhat. But, you know, he, he, he's been very humble about just saying, well, you know, people didn't like my stuff, but I didn't have any objectivity about that. So I think that's reasonable because, you know, it's easy. It, it would have been an easy 
position to abuse, you know, by using a, a you know, pen name or whatever. Like you pay yourself under a pen name. So we didn't do any of that. Uh, and I think, I, I guess, I, I think I, I wrote like a bit of a thug, you know, one of those kind of thug stories that I kind of, like, the credit was like TMO or something for the Mighty One. Um, the, the first credit, I, proper credit I got was for Lenny Zero in the magazine. But I wrote that for free. Um, just so, in order to save money, so we could get Frank Miller to do the cover. You know, because I've got to save the money from somewhere, you know. Yeah. I remember that Frank Miller cover. <laughs> My reaction was, he saw you coming. <laughs> <laughs> this is the famous Frank Miller cover that's never been officially published is it yeah uh, yeah like that david's feedback to frank miller was was so offensive that miller's reply was was it like tear up my invoice return my artwork and leave me the hell alone was that effect wow <laughs> and they did <laughs> and he never worked with them again so uh, that's interesting um can i ask uh, what's been your best job hardest job sort of question as a writer uh, hardest job, uh, probably it was the last part of A History of Violence that took me a year. Uh, I just got stuck on it and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, I, said to, I said to the editor, look, don't worry, I know what I'm doing, I don't have to do your synopsis. And oh, you know, it always works out, well it didn't work out. And uh, finally, uh, I was given the, the winning idea by uh, Andy Helfer's assistant who told me about a real incident that had happened in New York with the gangs and uh, as I said, oh well, that's it, yeah, well done. He, he didn't want to give the idea to me but Andy needed the story and so he stole it from him and gave it to me. And, uh, that, that was, you know... A, often start out not knowing how I'm going to end the story, but I usually manage it, but in that case, I didn't. Rob? Okay. Um, I, I did a, a Doctor Who comic where I thought it would be a really clever kind of way to play with the comic form where Pidge is going to... The fact that this is difficult to explain shows that it was a mindfuck of a job. It's like page one was page 22 of a comic, and the comic started with all our characters effectively going, oh well, that worked out well. And then what they realize is time is moving backwards. Uh, so uh, so you went, you started the comic page 21, then you went page uh, 22, 21, 20, 20. But at some point the doctor realizes that time is going backwards and goes, hang on, and has to actually try and fix it and flip it. And I thought this was a really clever idea to play with the comic form and time travel and Doctor Who. I mean, I tried to write it and I just, it's, it's the only job where I, I actually wrote to the editor and I just can't do this. This is too difficult. And then, um, I can't, I've, what was the thing, the, the Voltex Manipulator, is it called? Um, they wear on the wrist or something? Yeah. That was the thing that got me out of it. I'm about halfway through, oh, thank God for that. So like, now I can have someone jump between time. Anyway. Time travel stories are really hard. Don't write time travel stories. <laughs> I mean, most Doctor Who stories is he turns up and there's, some, there's an adventure and then he has it and he gets back in the TARDIS. If you actually start playing with the mechanics of time travel, it'll, it'll twist your noggin. So, so that was hard. Because if it was real, he could just go back to earlier in, this, in the adventure and then save himself all the trouble. The Doctor Who runs down the corridor, but if he was wise, he'd go back in time and just travel back to the other end of the corridor earlier. 
I'm, it, it doesn't make any sense. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the fact that you know, Doctor Who is kind of like you know he's got a time machine, uh, but you know, he, he never actually uses it. It's funny what you're saying. I tried I tried to write a Doctor Who story about a character who moves backwards through time while everybody else, the rest, you know, he's moving. We're all moving forward in time one second per second, but this guy lives his life moving backwards in time at one second per second. So it's about like intersecting with him as he passes. And I thought it was a really cool idea, but I just could not get my head around how to actually make that work as a story. And then Christopher Nolan made Tenet. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's how you tell that story. But, it, but that film is a total head fuck. You know, yeah, just yeah, trying yeah. to follow it. Like you've seen, you've seen the kind of flow charts that show the movement of time through. It kind of makes sense, but it's hard to follow. And like, I, I'm simply not smart enough to write that story. Yeah, I gave up in the end. It's like, oh, it's, it's just some baddie. Kind of thing. Yeah. So that's your worst well, I didn't even like. I ended up not even writing that story because it was too difficult. No, the the hardest thing to write well, like, is just trying to keep Dan DiDio happy on anything at DC Comics because, like, he would just kind of like want, want you to pivot. And what that means is throw away your entire story plan and incorporate whatever random bullshit he pulled out of his ass that day. <laughs> but, then, but, but then next week he changes his mind and you have to throw that away and do the next thing. And you, you, after six months of that, and you haven't actually finished part one yet because you've rewritten it seven times. That's the point at which. You know what? I might go and write something else. Or we'll go to a different place. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I got blacklisted at DC for ten years. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm back, baby. Uh, Mike. Yeah, uh, I, I, I have difficulty with stories where I, if I don't plan, well, I because I, I plan everything. I always, I always know the ending, um, and then I know where the character starts from, and I work out the route to get there. Like you know, if you're going on a, a nice country drive, you'll find some interesting places along the way. But I end up in cul-de-sacs and driving into canals, and so I do an awful lot of uh, rewriting. But there was one dread one a couple of years ago where I wanted to set it in the middle of the Black Atlantic and have all sorts of, you know, pirates and stuff. So it's a great fun, but uh, the first draft I actually got to the end, and you know, reread it and went, yeah, I've just wasted three weeks writing a big pile of poo, and I, I, I get in touch with Matt and said. Yeah, I'm sorry, this, my own work isn't good enough, I'm rejecting it, and I had to rewrite it. But it was because I made too many changes on the way. Too many great ideas that made me steer it here and steer it there. And we ended up not where I was supposed to be. The story did not end the way it should have. And that was, that was true. I was going through a particularly um, bad time uh, because I had run out of biscuits. And, <laughs> you know, there I just had to bring it up with the public, but uh, no, it was it was just one of those things that was frustrating, and it makes you want to go, no, 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 scrap the whole thing and start again. But then you go, yeah, but he's agreed to do this one, and, and there's money at the end of it if I get it right, so you force your way through. But then I always find that through adversity, you end up with really interesting stories to tell at panels and conventions. So, <laughs> not this one, but yeah. So it's yeah. Sometimes they're just hard, and sometimes the story just won't get told. And you've still got to do it because somebody's got to, you know, put, put food on the table and choose and the kids, and we're not kids, but even so, we're saving fortune. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's never been particularly hard like that. With novels, though, yeah, that's a killer. Novels are awful because you can't blame the, um, the artist if it turns out bad. That's <laughs> why I write comics. <laughs> so, leading on from your, your answer, um, how do the other panelists go about actually the process of coming up with a doing story? You know, be it a, 
a series or a, a one-off. What's your process? Do you want to take it? Okay, John. <laughs> well, uh, it's never the same. You start somewhere and then you move someplace else. You, know, you might start at the ending of one story, you might start at the beginning of another. It's, it's impossible to sum up. Um, I, I couldn't tell you how I write a story because I never write one the same twice. And it's, uh, the process is always different. Um, yeah, I, I think it's similar for me. They kind of they start in different places depending on the story. Um, like sometimes, I mean, I come up with a lot of stories that are just original. Um, you know, like my own my own thing, not based on some other characters. But like, I, I never really sit down and write those. I kind of write copious notes on them, get it all figured out, and then it kind of feels like you know I've done the work, even though it's not actually something that's publishable. Um, plus, also, just you know, you want to get paid, so and the money is in you know writing IP or whatever. Um, like ninety percent of the work I've done, eighty percent is like an editor will reach out saying, "Hey, how do you want to write so and so, whatever?" And so. What I've learned is that I've got a, my head can always convince me that I, I should take on a job because it'll help my career or it'll pay well or whatever. And my, sometimes my gut is like, no, you shouldn't because you don't have a feel for this or you haven't got like a, you haven't got a story, you know, or like the feeling that you're going to get a story, I guess is what it is. And it is like a gut feeling. And my gut is always right. And whenever I've ended up writing something that just becomes a nightmare, it's because I should have listened to my gut. Uh, like, for example, with Daredevil, I just wasn't the guy to be, I, I shouldn't have been writing Daredevil, you know. But whereas what I'm doing now, writing The Expanse, I'm like, yeah, no, actually, I am the guy because I, I love that and I get it and I understand it and I know the characters' voices and I know what's appropriate and what's not. And, but where, where does the story come from? I don't know. Like, sometimes you get inspired and sometimes you don't. Uh, I think a lot of the time with me, at least, I, I'm very non-linear the way I do things, you know. I think I'm, I'm very disorganized and it's a very kind of organic sort of process. But often it's almost like seeing a movie trailer in my head where I don't quite know the whole plot yet, but I've got bits. You know, I can see, you know, like the highlights, the exciting bits that they would put in a movie trailer or just like directions of travel for characters or like two different ideas that would combine in an interesting way and then turn into a third thing. So yeah, so it's kind of messy and organic like that. And with me, there's a lot of process of like lots of, and because I'm very scatty and forgetful, I've got ADHD, so my head's kind of all over the place. Uh, so I've, I've got to I write down all the notes I think of in this kind of uh, stream of consciousness kind of way because otherwise I'll forget it again, you know. And gradually it sort of coalesces. It's almost like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. There's lots of different bits, but I don't quite know how they're going to fit together yet. And and there'll come a moment where what is a random cloud of noise starts to sort of take shape and it finds structure and like random elements become cause and effect. Like this happens because that happens, and then because that happened then this happens you know and that's I think that's the difference between a story and just a bunch of stuff that happens you know it needs it needs to become cause and effect and, yeah, and it should be with every story now I'm not speaking for everybody but for me with every story if you take out one element the story fits so that every every story has to have a um Every part of the story has to have a, more than one reason to be there, I find. With, especially with a comic, because you've got so much, a tiny amount of space to, to tell things. Yeah, so, yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm quite like Andy, like that. I, I, I start off somewhere, sometimes there's a line someone says, or something I think of. I mean, I had one, I, one dread story 
that came about because I was uh, driving uh, through a place called Black Rock, which is south of Dublin, and Black Rock has got 400 sets of traffic lights in the space of about 12 yards, and you just cannot get through. And I started thinking, what if you had some kind of connection, cybernetic connection in your head, so that they could sense you coming and they let you through, like if the judges had it built into their bikes, you know, then they could be driving through the traffic, they never had to stop for a red light. And the more I thought about it, the more I started building up an idea of what if someone could hack into that and slow the judges down so they don't get to a particular location by a particular time. And then if, that, if they have that ability, they could sell that information to someone else. And then I thought, what if someone could track specific judges? What if someone could track Judge Dredd? What if someone had a psychic connection to Judge Dredd because of something happened and they could tell other people where he was at any given time? So that's what I ended up with a story called The Long Game, well, which is part of a much longer thing, which uh, is the actual sequel that's happening right now in 2018. But it's got nothing to do with the traffic lights. So I can still use that one for something else. Ah, I have two ideas for the price of one and I get paid twice. That's 20 quid, not just 10. <laughs> so that's the ideas evolve like that. But it's not every story has more than just one of those ideas. It might have a dozen, or it might have fewer than that. But they. They come out of the ether, and it's up to us to let me shape the ether into something hopefully <coughs> solid or at least seemingly solid. That sounds very profound. Someone please write this stuff down. Like, <laughs> this is gold. Well, um, I think. Well, I mean, I think my brain is essentially very lazy, and I have to sit down and I have to work it. And um, uh, I, I find. The, the whole idea of sort of like, maybe for some people, like they're, they're touched by genius and like the whole story downloads into your head. Um, I, th I largely think that's bullshit. And, um, yeah, it, it has once or twice, you kind of go, oh, I've got it. But most of the time, you have to, it's like building a chair or something. You actually you kind of know how stories work and what they need, hopefully. And then you sit down and you start putting the parts together. And while you do that, other ideas present themselves but you you kind of get the basics of what a story needs to actually you know have a, have a decent sort of structure uh, so yeah I, I mean for me it's just I have to sit down and make myself do the work I mean but, but I say that but I also think that if you get stuck sometimes for me anyway I'll go oh, I've got nothing this is just a waste of time and I'll go and have a bath or something and I'll be in the middle of the bath reading a book or something I'll go oh, the entire Fucking solution just presents itself. So uh, you have to look away from it. Yes, yeah. When you're in the there are sorts of bubbles and rubber ducks in your stories. I noticed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> but um, but no, I mean, it, so but, but you know, going back to what John said, I think every single time is 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 slightly different. But I think if you know the basic rules, um, hopefully you can put a competent structure together and and build out to, out of that. And so, you guys have worked for um, on your own IP and other people's IPs. What do, is there differences where you've created the, the character yourself versus where you're picking up somebody else's character? And sometimes you're maybe doing things like TV or you know more. Is it more restrictive if you're doing Doctor Who or something like that? Well, some people are really good at picking up other people's characters. Uh, and some people are really crap at it. I'm one of the crap ones. Uh, 
We're all copying you, though. <laughs> That's why I prefer to write my own stuff, because I get to make the rules, and I get to decide how things work, and I don't have to work to anybody else's framework, which is probably one of the reasons I've never done that much for America, because... Uh, they like you to stick to their own framework. They like to see synopses, which I don't like to do. Because I figure, if I write a synopsis and I know what's going to go in a story, I'll be too bored to write it. <laughs> so I, I like to make writing a, a sort of voyage of discovery for me as well. And I like to have certain parameters in the story, certain sections of it in my head and then just explore it as I go along. And often the whole story changes, like a, an incident might change the whole story and it might become something entirely different. Um, so if I'd done a synopsis for it the way like the Americans would like with their characters, I couldn't do that. And I just get bored and I write crappy stories. So, uh, so I don't... I. I'm no good at writing other well seldom good at writing other people's stories maybe sometimes like a character like Boba Fett who I look on as Judge Dredd in drag <laughs> I can handle that okay and he's pretty easy but uh, I, th I thought I would do a good Xena warrior princess and I was just terrible at it uh, uh, so there are very few um, I I could do a good Batman, I understand Batman okay, but uh, most of other people's characters I'd rather not touch. I have much more fun doing my own. And they're more warped generally than other people's <laughs> characters. Yeah, I, um, I find yeah, there's definitely restrictions writing someone else's character. Um, what about writing um, just Dredd? Uh, a whole bunch of us a couple of years ago had uh, a bunch of dread writers had all of our stories lined up and ready to go and then we got word from on high um, that was thing called Chaos Day is going to happen and we all went well, we finished all these stories that will now not work in a Mega City 1 that's made entirely out of rubble and dust um, but because it was how hard to try and come up with stories we come up with things we wouldn't have come up with otherwise I certainly did I know I'm pretty sure Al Ewing said the same at one point one of my favourite stories, the dressers I wrote, is called Forsaken, which is where a bunch of cadets who've been fighting on Chaos Day disappear, and they have, we go through their stories to find out what happened to them. But that could never have happened. So obstacles are help us to climb to greater heights sometimes. But at the same time, it's a pain in the proverbial and in the whole sometimes when you have to say, oh yeah, I can't do this because we don't know what the man in charge, John, is going to do with a certain character. So some of the, some of these things are offered. But with them, well, with Project Specs, which is an entirely my creation and, and some artists, um, well, I can do whatever I want. So if I suddenly decide a character goes one way or something happens, but it happened when I was writing the first uh, book, um, the next comes back to a ship where his prisoner is, and the ship has been attacked, and gee, the prisoner has midnight uh, indicating shame is destroyed, all of the attackers, and as a throwaway line, it wasn't supposed to be in there. Beck says, "I don't think I didn't notice the number of the discrepancy between the number of torsos and the number of heads and limbs." And then she goes, "Well, you were gone a long time, and I was hungry," and that completely changed the way her character was. So I had to go rewrite it to, to fit. 
But that couldn't happen if I was writing an existing established character, or less likely to happen. Yeah, I mean, Curry Rowland is, is, there is, there's plus and minuses, there's, there's way more freedom, you are potentially not going to earn as much money. <laughs> um, but, um, I mean, I'm doing a Curry Rowland at the minute, and, and it's, there's no editor, and it's a blast, frankly, after, which is weird, because I generally, for the most part, as long as they're not idiots, believe that a good editor is a, is a really positive thing, you know, you need a sounding board, you need someone to go, you might want to have a think about that again. That's a, that's a useful voice to have. But it is nice after like 20 years of me doing this to just once just kind of go there. You know what I mean? And I'm really, really enjoying it. Um, but um, uh, yes, but but it's also part of the job. I mean, there's it, not many of us can afford to just do Crate Round. We, you, 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 you tend to you work on other people's characters and, um, and you can have a really good time if you find a voice within that for yourself. Or, like Andy says, sometimes, you know, with Marvel and DC, you can be given a certain character and you can go, oh, I'm not the right person for this at all, but you try and make it work as best you can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, more freedom in Crate Round is, you are, it's, it's, all, it's all you for good or ill. Yeah, no, I agree with all of that. Um, I think it's hard to generalise because it, dep it depends on the character, depends on the IP, you know. Um, you know, when it's superhero stuff, then I'm usually not the right guy because I didn't grow up reading that and I don't really have a feel for it. Uh, but like with John Constantine, for example, when I was writing Hellblazer, I just like, yeah, no, that's, I totally know how to make this work. I totally know how this guy talks. So that, that comes very easy because you've got that kind of foundation to build on of like really good writing by all these other previous, uh, previous writers. Um, so yeah, so that, I found that came very naturally to me. Um, and I'm finding the same thing now with The Expanse. I kind of know the characters and I know how they talk. I want, one of the things that bugs me about comics is when characters all speak with the same voice. You see, we were talking before about, like, you know, before the panel about, like, a, a, lot, of, a lot of American comics feel rather homogenized. You know, they, they, you know, there's a kind of a house style. Mm. But, but you want that individual voice, you know. Um, so I, I always want characters. You should be able to tell who's speaking just from the dialogue, you know, because everybody speaks in a different manner. Um, so, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm rambling and I kind of remember what the question was. Yeah? Like, what's easy? Yeah, but at the same time, doing your own thing. Um, I haven't really done very much creator own at all. But, like, you know, uh, recently I did this Comicsology Originals book called uh, Cold Iron that was like a, a real a story up and I've had cooking in the back of my head for years uh, about the Isle of Man, which is a place that I've got family connections there and, you know, like lots of memories of the place. And, there's a certain atmosphere I wanted to evoke of like, you know, me being a kid there exploring, you know, places tied to kind of old fairy stories and mythology and stuff like that. And it's got a very, it's kind of like local hero meets Pan's Labyrinth kind of vibe to it. And like, that's not really a traditional sort of something that's going to sell in comics, but like, yeah, but I know exactly how it's supposed to sound. So I'm just going to do this anyway. And it won't make any money, but I kind of don't care because I just want to get it out. And so it was really nice just writing these characters who are just so completely different from anything else I've ever done. And that was that was nice. But yeah, like you say, you, you also want to get paid. So that's that. I can understand the uh, frustration of uh, people who are trying to write stories for where somebody is controlling it and they don't quite know what's going on. And, uh, I remember uh, when Gordon Rennie was one to write a lot of dreads, one day I passed him at a convention. He said to me, "Are you not dead yet?" Because <laughs> <laughs> it was a little ray of sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> That's Gordon. 
<laughs> Gotta love it. So, um, just before we go to Q and A, um, I've got two editors on the panel. What's it uh, like being, you know, from the other side, you know, from the editor side, handling a writer? Those bastards. <laughs> uh, I am absolutely not the guy to ask this because I was a terrible editor. Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I, I was young and foolish and had no idea what I was doing. Uh, all, all I had was like, you know, what I felt it should be like. But I, 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 was, I wasn't trained, so I just asked lots of questions. The irony was that when I was, I'm talking about that dissertation I did, you know, and I'd interviewed like lots and lots of writers and artists for advice, talk about Alan Grant and so on. And I can't remember, did I interview you? I don't think I did when I was when I was a student. I don't think we met until I worked at the car. No, no, we didn't. But, um, but that, the weird thing was that I ended up like not only working with half the people I'd interviewed, but then like became their editor. And it was like, this should be the other way around, you know? So, yeah. But I think, and also, you know, I've always been far too blunt um, and I, I wasn't sufficiently empathetic with creators um, uh, because now that you know, I've been doing it 20 years myself, it's kind of like we're, we're all kind of paranoid. We can, you send your stuff off and you know, hope to hear back from the editor. You want you want a pat on the head. You want a bit of vindication. You want a bit of encouragement. Uh, a good editor, like you know, like people like Will Dennis, like I worked with at Vertigo, who was great, and he would just you know once a week he would just like ring up and shoot shit, like how's it going, you know, and just talk. And nowadays it's all very kind of. It feels very impersonal, and like you know, you send a script off, and it's like dropping it down a well. I don't hear back, you know. And it just you want you want you want to know if you're doing okay, you know. Mm. Just want a little pat on the head. So if I could go back and do things differently, I would just develop much more. I mean, like I'm still friends with everybody I worked with in 2008, apart from that one guy that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, which is oh, nice. No, please do. But yeah, but I, you know, I, if I could go back and change one thing about like, you know, my editorial style, it would just, it would just be to have a bit more heart, you know, uh, about like, because it's hard being a freelancer, you know, and uh, you know, it's hard being an editor too, because it's like a weekly comic is a real grind, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, it's it's hard, and we're all struggling, and it's just I should have been a little bit more empathetic. I think. Anyone want to add? Um, Mike, you you you're known for writing. You know, with your uh, yes. journey planet and your rusty staples. Yeah, yeah, I've done a bit of that. I've done a, I've done a bit of editing uh, too. Um, editing novels is a pain because it, it, it's it's changing it. Yeah, to get get new editor, why just to change stuff because you know it's not working and they think it's fantastic is is very tough. But then um, I, I've had a lot of trouble with uh, my editors the to make my stuff, so I think it's important for me to put that back out there. Um, that pain goes all the way here. No, it's, uh, I, I quite enjoy editing. Uh, I really like the idea of, of taking, taking a you know, novice writer and nurturing them and getting them into you know, to speed. But then you can only go so far because if you train them too well, then they take work from you in the future. And that's <laughs> not what we want. What we want to do is discourage other potential writers from getting anywhere. Really bad advice, so they'll muck up. That's true. You tried to do that with me, and you failed, and I became a great success. And here I am. I mean, I'm sitting nearest to John. That's how good I am. 
We sit in his shadow, though. That's the thing. Yeah. Well, no, the editing is great, but it's not like creating. It's we do great. tend to encourage yeah. artists, though. Yes, that's true. We're not going to take work from them. Yeah. Well, we don't encourage artists to write their own stories. Oh, no, no. Oh, <laughs> last, uh, oh, last year at that, um, uh, the Skill and Comic Fest, afterwards I was chatting to a guy called uh, Declan Chalvey, who's a young Irish um, artist uh, who is phenomenal. And he was saying, yeah, he's writing his own stuff. He said, yeah, I've been encouraging the other artists to, you know, to write their own material. And I'm going, no, 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 no. That's food from the mouths of my non-existent children that you're taking there. And um, so we don't want that. We want artists to think that it's really hard to write. We don't want them to know the truth. If there's artists listening, that bit was just a joke. Because it's really hard, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So should we take some questions? Any questions? But Dan. Uh, how does the writing process change when you're working with others? A couple of you have uh, co-written stories, uh, Aliens vs. Predator, your oh, understanding it's, of that. It's totally different, really. It's, uh, it's like uh, playing bat ball, really. You bounce ideas off each other. and uh, Some stories really improve from having someone like comedy, good action, having that... Uh, double source of ideas is a good thing, but anything with a strong emotional content generally is too personal to work with anyone else. So it, it is a totally different process. Um, how did you, and Alan, if you ever had like butted heads on an idea, but how did you, because if it's three of you, I've, I've co-written before, there's three, and it's like, well, decide in vote, right? Because it's two against one. So how did you decide to, you know, how to get across well, because I was the senior guy, generally the first to <laughs> But in the end, it split us up. Right. You know, there's a couple of stories that we just couldn't agree with. Uh, we weren't getting anywhere on. One was the last American. Uh, we were arguing about a few simple words, you know, and going back and forth. I think we were just getting stale right. together. And Chopper, where we had a disagreement about what should happen in it. And, uh, uh, well, it's going on for days and days and weeks, and uh, in the end we just decided that was we had to, time to split up, and it did him the world of good, and, and me too. But we still, I mean, we still got together at night, and was, we were still friends, we didn't, you know, get at each other's throats, uh, and it, 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 it worked quite well, because some of the best stuff we wrote we wrote together after work, after our boring work day. Andy? Yeah, I mean, I've co-written a, 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 not many, but a few things. But like, I, I fell over backwards when you asked me, invited me to co-write the Dread Aliens thing, because I, yeah, I was you, editing. You were aliens, I didn't. Yeah, well, I, I'm a huge aliens nerd as well as Dread nerd. And, you know, I can't remember how the whole thing came about, but I was, I think I was just throwing ideas at you. You know, yeah. you were kind of fishing for ideas, like, you could do this, you could do that. And in the end, it was like, do you want to co-write it with me? And I'm like, yeah, but also... <laughs> you could do his voice as well. <laughs> but it was also terrifying, because, like, you know, like, I've been, like, reading this guy's stuff since I was 10 years old, you know. But, like, did I, I went around your house for, like, a weekend, right? And we just kind of batted ideas well, around. I, and I tried it with Garth, too, but he just had so much energy. He's <laughs> <laughs> way too enthusiastic. Garth, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> I, you less energy. I, I was born tired and cynical, so, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you were a bit 
more laid back. <laughs> but we'd like, I think the way we did it was like, because it was, we kind of did it, it was like six pages of Dread for 2008. So we'd do four of those would make 24 pages for a Dark Horse reprint of that. So we kind of broke it down that way. And I think you wrote the first four, and then I would rewrite them. And I would write the next four, and then you would rewrite them. That's what we did. And then we just kind of like airbrushed over each other's work until it kind of like you couldn't quite see the joint, I think. But, I, but that said, I was basically trying to write something in the John Wagon style. I don't know. And you were kind of like, oh, you've done that wrong. You dread would never say that. We faked it fairly effectively, I think. I faked it anyway. Uh, any other questions? That chat over there? Uh, you've all had like, you know, great collaborations with artists and because of the collaborative nature, it comes from that way. But, so in those collaborations, you know who you're writing for. Also, the nature of comics is that you sometimes don't know who you're writing for. Like, so that obviously changes it. So kind of hell does it change in, in a way? Do, do you have a different head on when you're writing for an artist you know yeah. for an artist you don't? Yeah, if you, if you work with someone a bunch and you know their strengths, you can play to their strengths. And you also know you trust them to actually, you know, I mean, I've worked with like Harry, Henry Flint and Disraeli and Chris Weston, and, and I know what I can do and they will, yeah, they, they will sort of like, you know, tell a story beautifully anyway, and I don't have to worry about it. Well, you know, when you work for DC and Marvel and whatever, sometimes you don't know, and the pages turn up, and frankly, occasionally you, you're horrified, and you're there with your head in your hands, and you kind of go, right, okay, what have I got to do to rewrite this to actually, to make it work, you know, which is not the best way of doing it. So, I mean, I, for, for all of us, I imagine, we've all got people we've worked with a number of times, and it's good, so you just want to carry on working with the people who, well, good, basically, you can, you can sort of can, you know, tell your story in the best way possible. Yeah, true, plus, um, if you know the artist well enough, then you get a kickback. Um, no, no, <laughs> did I say that bit out loud? Um, no, I, I, I used to work a lot with uh, PJ Holden, um, until it suddenly stopped happening, and I, I was checking in with him, to, does he think that I told her not to assign him? Because I, I didn't. But when I was writing stuff that I knew PJ was doing, then I would have to, I, mean, I could shortcut, I could just, you know, very very simple panel descriptions and say, you know, just do this, just do that. And then he would just draw his own thing anyway because he doesn't pay any attention to the script. But, uh, <laughs> but then with John Higgins, though, who I've known John forever, and John also doesn't pay attention to the script, so he just writes what, does whatever he wants. Why am I here? <laughs> yeah, I, I find it really helps if you know, you want to know who you're writing for because you want to play to their strengths, you know? Like, different artists are good at different things. We've all got different styles and so on. So, uh, like, you know, this guy's really, like, you're right for Simon Bisley, then you're going to want to, like, do lots of cool album covers, splash pages or whatever. You know, you're not going to want to draw, you know, you're not going to want to give him, like, okay, I'm writing a very talky script at the moment. It's kind of character-driven drama, and there's lots and lots of dialogue. Uh, and I'm like, does this not feel like comics? Or so I went back to look at Preacher. Like, okay, well, how do, you know, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon do these incredible dialogue-driven scenes? They've gone for pages, but it never feels stale because, like, it, there's always life in the, you know, like, visually it never feels stale because Steve Dillon is always going to, knows how to move into close-ups, capture nuances and expression and so on. So if you know that you're writing for a Steve Dillon, then you're going to write that in a different way than you would if you used... Simon Bisley was going to be drawing that same page. They're both amazing artists, but just in very different ways, you know? Um, and, like, especially in American comics, nine times out of ten, you just don't know who's going to be drawing it, you know? And often I've found that, like, often the artist doesn't actually speak English as a first language. 
So there's often translation issues. Um, and so you want to write it in a simple style. But like, for example, I've worked with Jock for so long. Not so much nowadays, because he's a big megastar and left in his dust now. But, um, but you know, there's a, I, I tend to write, I think probably John's scripts are the biggest influence on my writing style. You know, like I, they're very sort of terse and brief and just to the point, but to just try and, you want to try and evoke an image in the artist's mind without being like tediously prescriptive about everything. You know, just give, give them the wiggle room and inspire them, but let them do their thing. And Jock, like, the, and, like I've, I've adapted that kind of style, and then Jock just gets it. You know, I think because we'll see a picture in our head when we read a script. And Jock seems to see it the same way I do. Whereas, like other artists, sometimes will just do, like you say, it's so wildly different from from what, like, how could you think that was the appropriate thing to do? Because you just can't tell what's happening, you know? I did a, a Suicide Squad script that, that an Argentinian artist drew, and the language difference. And I wrote that there was 10 foot tall super soldiers walking through the corridors of his prison. And the pages came back fully drawn and inked. And he'd drawn 100 foot tall um, super soldiers. And it's like, well, it's, it's a prison. They're going to be knocking down ceilings as they just walk. So that was a particular highlight of, of the pages turning up and going, what the fuck do I do with this? <laughs> I've heard this story. I don't know if it's apocryphal. I don't know if it's one of yours, John, but possibly. I think Dave Bishop told me that there was uh, a European artist once drew a dread script where somebody was meant to be, dread was getting garroted like by somebody behind him with like using it like a cheese wire. Yeah, it was a corrupt. Uh, and the guy mistranslated cheese wire and he had the guy attacking Dread with a slice of cheese. <laughs> I don't know about that, but there was a, a famous, uh, I think it was a Mach 1 script, uh, an Argentinian artist was drawing and uh, the script called for him to raise his artificial arm above his head. And the artist drew a guy with two arms waving an artificial arm. <laughs> and John, um, you've worked very, you know, a lot with Carlos and now Dan. Is there, you know, do you enjoy working with the, you know? Yeah, well, you you like to work with artists who uh, who. who <laughs> adequately represent what, what, what you're trying to say and uh, you know, and uh, but, but uh, working with an artist you know sort of changes the sort of thing you write like uh, on Robo Hunter with Ian Gibson on the job well of course I'm going to put in a lot of silly little robots because he draws them so well and he's so charming you know another artist like uh, I can't remember who the artist we started off with was. Was it? He's not the same kind of artist, and it, it would have been a more dramatic and less interesting story than in Ian Gibson's hands. So they change what you do. You're working for a particular artist, and uh, uh, you work as a team, and, and things evolve in a different way. Another question. Jump in the back. Short into a finite number of panels or pages? Um, 
first thing I say is like end a page with a mini cliffhanger, right? Try and give it, don't just treat it like you're tumbling towards an end. Each page should have its own structure. So, uh, and, and if you do that, you, you hopefully you keep teasing people along the way and just build within that. And then sometimes, I mean, I do this all the time. I, I'll write a page and I go, there's too many panels on this. And then I go and try and see if I can combine two panels or, or and try and what, write the script and then chip it back. It's a bit like sculpting. Uh, you, 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 you'll end up with something, you go, oh, this needs a bit more knocking off, and maybe I can knock this back there, and try and trim and trim and trim. But also, one last note I would say is just, bear in mind it's always, it's a visual medium. And I think when, when, we, when we, we write the 2000 ID, I find this all the time, you can really fall into the trap of doing six panels every page, and there's no dynamism on the page. If you do that, you've got to, you know, if you've got a big emotional beat, give it a bit of space, you know what I mean? One panel on the page, if that's the big panel on the page, well, give it a bit of space, give it a bit of room, which will mean you trim in a cup, something else elsewhere, basically, to allow that space. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say one of the best ways to start is to read a lot of scripts and see, and uh, compare them to the final product and see how it's done, because the artists will interpret the script in their way. and. The, the writer's job, as, as, as I see it, is to tell the story to the artist. The artist's job tells it to the rest of the world. So if they decide a certain thing goes a certain way, they're usually going to be right, or at the very least, they're usually going to be culpable. So we don't have to worry too much about that. You just have to make sure that the artist knows what you want. I, I have a habit of this page aren't updating there. These are pages from some of our scripts. But on my one, I have... yours. Yeah. It's got stuck. Yes. Oh, okay. Can you can you spin it? Because um, uh, the next one yeah. is quite funny. Because if you look oh, at so yeah, could you go back to that previous one? Yeah. Can you go back one more? Bubble? There. Yeah. Look at how much dialogue there is on yeah. that page. Yeah. yeah. Guess who wrote that? Yeah. <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you since you're both here this weekend. Is it true that Dave Gibbons once described your scripts, John, as quote? a series of exciting telegrams. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, like, a, like famously, there's a spectrum of writing style, like in terms of how much information you put on a panel description. At uh, one end, at the far end of the spectrum, we've got Alan Moore, who will write like a, a six-page tone poem entirely in all caps that's like one panel description. And at the other end of the spectrum, you've got John, who's like, dread, headshot, grim. <laughs> and the fact is, is, that's all you need sometimes, you know, because like too much is just going to do the artist's head. It's a lot quicker as yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but one thing I try and do, and I know I love to try, I always do, is make sure that I have one page of script representing each page of dialogue, or each page on the comic. The reason I do that is, well, there's twofold. Um, like, uh, first reason is because John Higgins said to me, oh, do it shorter because then I have to pin two pages up above the board and that's a pain. And also it stops me from overwriting the panel descriptions because I have a habit of giving too much detail or too much dialogue. So if I force myself to be terse, which I'm not being now, um, <laughs> then theoretically it should be easier for the artists because my job is to make their job easier, I think. Yeah. Well, part of my job. I heard that another Steve Dillon tip was that, especially when he was doing a, uh, from a John Smith script, was that he would just put like black marker through 90% of the panel description <laughs> and just leave the relevant salient details. You know, it's kind of like, so yeah, we should aim to write that way in the first place. You know, just, they don't need all of this fluff. Just give it. Brevity is there. 
But to come back to answering your question, right? How, how do you how do you uh, boil it all down? Um, turn it to bullet points, right? Think like I agree with everything everybody said, right? Think visually. Try and tell a story visually. Like I absolutely agree that you know it, your job is to convey it to the artist, and it's the artist's job to convey it to the reader. So like try try to convey it through the visual through visual action uh, rather than you know to exposition and dialogue or whatever. But yeah, that whole kind of, uh, another good bit of advice about of Alan Grant, actually, was, as a sort of practice exercise, was to take any American comic, like I say American just because they tend to be like about 22 pages or whatever, that's like a done-in-one story, and then cross out everything in the story, literally just mark a pen in the comic, cross out the stuff that's unnecessary in order to tell a story, and try and tell a 20-page story in 10 pages, and then take that 10-page story, like, okay, how do I tell the same story in five pages? Uh, I just keep cutting it down and cutting it down. And that kind of process of compression is what 2000 AD is really, really good at. And I think that's why so many 2000 AD writers have gone on to success in American comics, because they've learned that compression, right? Um, because that, that brevity is kind of at the heart of comics. And you like by chopping out the irrelevant fluff, um, it, kind of, it kind of distills it. You know, into a more powerful form somehow. So yeah, so and you can just use bullet points almost to kind of like you know, you know that old phrase. Sometimes you have to kill your babies in writing. You know, this is a scene or a line of dialogue that you really love or whatever. But yeah, sometimes you just got to be quite ruthless and chop it down and chop it down. But I think that's that's quite good practice. Read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. There's a great sequence in there where he does this very long convoluted story and then he cuts it down and cuts it down until, like until eventually like a sort of you know an eighty panel story becomes two panels. And it's the same story, and it works. You get it. And so, yeah, like think in terms of he calls. I'm rambling. I'll keep. I'll, I'll wrap it up. But basically, there's a thing he calls closure, which is like it's like the cooler shove effect in film, where if you see two images juxtaposed, you, the brain automatically assumes a connection of meaning between those two images. That's the secret. Your brain fills in the gap between the two images, and so you can use that, and that actually involves the reader more as well. Practice, practice, practice. You can't get worse through practice. You can only get better. So, you know, if you think it's not working, then it doesn't matter. Scrap it and start again. And if it's still not working, guess what? Scrap it and start again. And one day, eventually, it will work. What's it? Ray Bradbury said, if you want to write, be a short story writer, or write a new short story every week, after a year, you will have to produce something. You cannot write 50 bad short stories <coughs> in a row. You will get better. Um, you won't get better if you stop. Yeah, and write lots of short things. Instead of writing, you know, like one hundred-page story, write ten ten-page stories. Uh, I'm talking specifically about comics here. Two different reasons. One is you can you can try and write in ten different styles. Uh, you can try work in ten different genres. You can try and work with ten different artists, and each of them is a lot easier to finish. And then you get that satisfaction of finishing things rather than that feeling of trying to roll the boulder up a hill and, you know, you described it earlier on before the panel is like, you know, uh, the difference between writing a novel and a comic is like a marathon versus a sprint, you know, so that little short 2000E style, you know, that is a sprint, but it means you like, even if you didn't feel like you aced it, you learned something from the process, you can finish it and move on. Uh, I think something I said. Some <laughs> the lights are going to go. I'd up. even recommend you write one-page stories because it's a lot easier to get your head around that, and it's a lot easier to see how the pacing works, how you build up to a punchline at the end. Try, try one-pagers. 
before you go on to the tens. In terms of, I agree with what you said about like read lots of comic scripts as well. There's a great website called the, I think it's called the Comic Book Script Archive. Um, and it's just got loads of script by loads of people. There's a bunch of my stuff on there. Um, but I think probably most of you guys have got stuff on I don't know. They've just cached it from wherever they can find on the internet and collated it. Like in screenwriting, there's a very strict house style for how you've got to format stuff. But in comics, like everybody's got their own style. You know, so there's no right and wrong way of doing it. There's a lot of leeway. So find what works for you. <laughs> there is a right way of doing it. It's short yes. we, we just told you that, John. <laughs> On that note, I'm being told to tie up. So can we say thank you very much for, for Andy, Rob, and Rob.